I guess do I need to should I rip us into into a session? If you'd like to, sure. The Yoda is getting a lot of use. I like it. It adds a real personal touch to it. It makes me feel like I'm like customizing a gun in Call of Duty or something like. Did you buy that somewhere in New York? No, I bought it off of ebay i think from china wow actually um yeah you know there's a whole universe of star wars glassware on the electronic bay yeah not hard to believe but yeah so we are uh we've got a guest for the first time ever in hotbox history yep the first one to open the door very first yeah rob how are you i'm good how are you guys oh you know uh (laughs) just just vibing just chilling um Mm -hmm. yeah wednesday vibes actually tuesday vibes jesus yeah that's that's the vibe right there not knowing what day (laughs) it is is um yeah how you guys been holding up in quarantine i know that question's become kind of uh redundant and obnoxious but uh been watching a lot of movies sometimes honestly no yeah it depends i was at the beginning of quarantine um it's interesting because i feel like my habits in terms of like screen consumption totally flipped at the beginning of quarantine because for a while like last year i felt like a little more engaged with television than with movies. And I was like still Mm -hmm. watching a lot of movies, but I just felt like I couldn't really watch anything like actually rewarding or stimulating and TV just felt like much easier to engage with. But I think that's also because TV is so effective as an avoidant. Uh, Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so like at the beginning of quarantine, I had like nothing to avoid really. And like no work looming over me, no deadlines. Uh, And so it's the golden days. Yeah. I just flipped back and I was like, well, I guess I have like time to invest in like great works of cinema again. But the past month um, just can't watch, can't watch a movie for the life of me. 
only yeah. been interested in like Oliver Stone movies <laughs> for nice. some for whatever reason. <laughs> Lately, I got the Jackass bug. There's just a week where I only watched the Jackass movies, and now I'm watching the show. But the show is so different in part because it's like the year 2000 on MTV. Uh, and also it's like, I guess, like in that like kind of TV feedback loop model instead of yeah. stretching out over like an hour and a half or something like that. And also it's censored for TV, so no no dicks or anything like that. Yeah, I've never seen the TV show. I've I watched like the uh, movies in high school a bunch or probably middle school, I guess, like sort of in between middle and high school uh, with my group of friends. But it's been a long time since so I've thought about those. Yeah, I watched the first one when I was in high school and I was just so I was just like, why would he shove? Why would he shove a max a matchbox car in his ass? I was just so disturbed by that. Yeah. And then so, you get older and you you understand why <laughs> someone would shove a matchbox car up their ass. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, there's nothing like it. It's the jolt. It's about the only jolt my brain can take this last couple of weeks. Yeah, I feel like in some ways it maybe pioneered some something really like interesting with the kind of uh, home video style. Like it might be worth revisiting. It's pretty good. And also the first episode I was surprised it has Johnny Knoxville walking around with like a fake erection and that's just played up for all the great 2000 MTV comedy it could be. But he poses with a Matrix poster with this fake erection. Hmm. I mean, that's like, I don't know. The interesting thing about like the movie versus the TV show is like, I feel like at least the first movie, what was so like radical about it is how it kind of put TV like into the cinema. Uh, you know, it's obviously like this synthesis of like skate videos and, and home videos and, and sure. all of this stuff. But it's just like, um, I don't know. It's like fucking wild that this just like loosely connected candid camera mini DV string of incidents is something that uh, achieved wide release. Yeah, along the lines of, like, home video TV, I'm thinking of, like, America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, which was sort of at the same point in time it, it was released, and I definitely think that that had a kind of uh, a resonance with home video and this, um, like, anyone can be a star kind of thing that we, it's just everywhere now. Yeah, and also that that show and Jackass both kind of have, like, a prepackaged, like, reaction crew like mm -hmm. reacting along with it and kind of instead of giving like that can studio laughter or something like that, you have like the cameraman throwing up or something in reaction to what he's seeing. Yeah. Uh, what have uh, your media engagement habits like been recently, Rob? Has, has quarantine changed anything for you? Um, yeah, since quarantine started, I've been watching a lot of, a lot more movies, I guess. Uh, I don't really watch it ton of cinema uh occasionally I'll, I'll see new movies but uh yeah i don't spend that much time revisiting sort of the history historical stuff um and like uh me and my girlfriend have just been like chilling in our apartment watching like uh the criterion app uh watching i don't know things that I, me particularly i've been watching a lot of stuff that i liked in college when i thought you know when when i was kind of first exposed to what cinema could mm -hmm. be uh, things like Chris Marker and Stan Brackage and sort of uh, experimental cinema in that very like kind of college vein. Um, 
So I watched a lot of that stuff. I watched like uh, some Sergei Eisenstein stuff and Tarkovsky and just things that like, I don't know, I guess I was feeling kind of burnt out around the time quarantine started and, and I was trying like looking for inspiration and in things that I really loved uh, a few years ago, like when I was younger um, growing up. Mm-hmm. So that's been big. Um, lately, I've been watching a lot of Lost. Uh, I've been doing like season four of that for the first time. It's a big commitment. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. I love that show so much. But I watched it when it was on TV and then haven't rewatched it since like one time in high school. Yeah, it's a big commitment, but it's really interesting to think. Um, I'm, I'm sort of reading this book alongside it uh, that's coming out on Duke Press with Duke Press later this year called The Discorrelated Image, um, which is all about um, digital cinema and, and post-cinema and the changes that have undergone cinema and TV um, in the last, in, in specifically the 21st century. And it starts with a big uh, sort of close reading of the first uh, opening shots of Lost, which is cool. So that kind of inspired it, but mm-hmm. also it's just a really good show. Yeah, I noticed one thing, though, from when I watched it on TV and then when I watched it later on on streaming is that the show is kind of I mean, people talk about it being like one of the last like water cooler shows or whatever, you know, one of these last like kind of TV monoculture shows where people are talking around the water cooler every week trying to figure out what's going to happen next. But once you start watching that in like a streaming format, when you have a click like a next episode button, you can click it kind of like changes a lot of the the highs and lows of the show. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can hear you um, fine. Cool. Yeah, so I guess I was just saying, uh, I think there's been a kind of interesting rhythmic shift from, um, you know, TV as a discrete uh, thing, week to week, that kind of monoculture uh, medium that existed, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe, um, and that shift toward uh, sort of binge viewing, um, mm-hmm. the rhythmic nature of that. Um, it's much like, it's much more palatable now to binge through five episodes of like hour long episodes of a show than it is to watch a movie that's two hours in length, which is crazy and insanely commonplace. But, uh, yeah, that's the world we're living in. Yeah. I remember after lost, like another one of the big shows was breaking bad or like Mad Men, but those both seem like people caught up to them once they were all on like streaming and they binged everything instead of watching them along the way. Yeah, I definitely didn't watch like Mad Men or, or Breaking Bad. I guess I sort of watched caught the end of Breaking Bad as it was being broadcast. But I definitely watched Mad Men as a stream based uh, series where I could view it all in a week or two um, in a way that I don't know that was necessarily intended for. I guess all of this, uh, you could say water cooler talk we've been having, I think maybe leads us into sort of the the big topic for today's episode, um, which is a pretty meaty question. Um, but like, I think uh, one worth investigating and I think definitely, <clears throat> especially now, you know, not to be like, oh, like topical and uh, beat the pandemic horse, but um, as television has been changing a lot, uh, I think, you know, we wanted to talk about like what, what what is the televisual image um and this conversation i think was sort of sparked by a list of movies rob that you put together 
Hey, it's Seth. I'm actually editing this episode together right now and realize we never name all the movies from this list that Rob created for the class he was pitching. We just kind of talk about them one by one if they come up in conversation. Uh, so I just want to say we put that full list in the show notes on this episode if you want to take a look there. But anyway, I'll throw it back to the recording now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so back pre-pandemic, I was applying for adjunct teaching jobs. And one of the ones I was applying for was a film and media studies gig at uh, Brooklyn College. And they wanted a syllabus for that. Um, so I was sort of in something I had sort of been thinking about in my own life about like the relationship between TV in movies, um, historically speaking, but also um, contemporary as contemporary mediums and how they've kind of collapsed in on each other, and what is uh, can can we still say that there's anything unique about TV as a medium as opposed to film as a medium, as both are increasingly mm -hmm. uh, watched on laptops, watched uh, on you know Heroku type streaming devices on your TV, smart TVs. Um, smartphones, yeah. um, things like Quibi, like um, there's so many places where film, both film and television are encountered now. Um, what makes these unique and media specific uh, forms? Yeah. And another um, thing about that isn't just that they're watched a bunch of places, but also that both are produced um, often by the same company, but in just two different like kind of time formats or different kind of transmission amounts. But they'll produce both things categorized as movies and TV, but it's instead a net, like an internet-based producer rather than a theater distribution-based or a TV distribution-based one. Yeah, I mean, uh, so for a long time, like, uh, there's this guy, he used to teach at NYU, but I think he teaches at UCLA now, or USC maybe, um, Henry Jenkins, and he sort of coined mm -hmm. this term convergence culture in this book uh, titled Convergence Culture in 2006. Um where he sort of tries to uh, explore this kind of idea that uh, television and, and media has moved beyond the limitations of format. Uh, you can no longer, like TV, in, in the way that sort of market execs want this to be and are building experiences that extend beyond um, television. Uh, he looks to like American Idol and, and voter participation and a lot of early stuff around 2006. It's it's a little dated and feels that uh, very much a product of this kind of like uh, mid 2000s cultural studies kind of moment. But yeah, he looks at things like American Idol. Um, <coughs> looks to like video games and watching movies on iPods and, and things <laughs> like that um, to to think about how um, how TV is kind of extracted from its place in uh, you know as a a weekly serial um, to become something more fluid and flexible that exists along networks and uh, can be viewed everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the like arc of both uh, cinema and television um, over, I don't know, the space of decades since the 1980s um, is just that like... Um, renegotiation of, of audience relationship and increasingly uh, a certain amount of control, I guess, that, like, was not available before. Um, and uh, it's just collapsed even further recently. Um, just, I don't know, the, like, you know, the sort of the, the rise of, like, the virtual screening room or something like that um, where... 
there is not really a time-based structure to cinema um, in much the same way that there hasn't really been to television anymore for a long time. Um, yeah. I think um, one thing like viewing rooms and uh, it's just been really heartening to watch people hold on to this idea of the cinema um, yeah. at a time when everybody could be theoretically streaming things on their own uh, devices and at their own pace. Um, the fact that people are getting together on zoom or on different, uh, streaming platforms to like watch things collectively in a classical, like cinematic way is, uh, I mean, it, maybe it's nostalgic and myopic and we'll look back and think it's kind of silly, but I don't know. It's made me feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside in the crazy chaotic moment. Yeah. And it's been cool seeing people like hold their own screenings on like Twitch and stuff like that yeah for sure um but also it's interesting that like the like kind of digital adaptation of like cinema is now moving over to a place like twitch where people are just watching people play video games and just kind of like chilling with people for a really long amount of time even though the person doesn't actually know they're there really yeah i mean it's sort of made i don't know it's interesting because the sort of like move of uh move of screening to platforms like Twitch uh, and these sort of like scheduled live streams has in a lot of ways, like um, I don't know for me, it, it more than recreating the idea of like a, of a screening room or theatrical experience. It almost mimics like cable television a little bit, just like, you know, movie channels like AMC or T TCM uh, are sort of being recreated digitally on Twitch. Like there's a, channel called like movie past i think or something like that um that <laughs> is just like you know offering basically yeah. a continuous curated stream of movies they did like a sandler fest a couple of months ago um and that's like something that's very interesting to me about the intersection of cinema and television um, is like cinema's distribution over television and how so much of like this, the story of like, um, cinephilia, I guess, uh, is the story of, you know, people being exposed to movies, whether like very, you know, early on, on like broadcast networks, uh, or like, you know, myself i feel like i was exposed to a lot of movies on like tnt and like tbs dinner and a movie and stuff like that um i don't know there's been a kind of uh, exchange for a long time um for sure yeah that's definitely a good point i hadn't thought of um i do think a lot of not not to limit it to personal experience but like a lot of my experience growing up was like because I lived in a kind of pretty rural part of Virginia, and uh, a lot of the my first exposure to cool films was either one through the internet. I used to like pour through these kind of best film list type stuff. But two, kind of more relevant to this point, is like the Sundance Channel and like the IFC Channel, where they were just kind of showing sort of indie cinema of the last 20, 30 years um, in ways that, you know, you didn't, in an underserved market, you didn't have access to in, when like video stores and stuff were kind of on the way out even as Netflix hadn't fully mm -hmm. asserted its kind of dominance. I mean, I think the, the, the real, you know, the, the fundamental change is, I guess, like, um, the evolution from like broadcast 
to screen display. Because um, that's like, you know, the fundamental definition of television is like if if you want to just be real practical, the definite the, the difference between cinema and television is that one is projected and the other is, you know, waves and and the signal that's 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 broadcasted um and i so i think so you know this list of uh movies um that from your proposed syllabus i think is really interesting to consider because um most of these movies or uh, at least a lot of them i think offer some kind of reflection on like what is what does it literally mean for like information and visual images to be sent out across a, a signal? You know, I think a movie like Videodrome is maybe like the most explicit version of that, uh, you know, where uh, the signal from this channel literally transforms the human body. And um, it's something that like television is something that you're like totally subject to and have no control over, um, which is, also, like I, a, a, a similar example, but I think it's also maybe kind of a counter example in a way is um, something like They Live, where like again, like the broadcast is this like oppressive force, but there's like the potential to hack that and to send a like uh, a radical message across the airwaves. Yeah, this is the kind of paradox of a mass medium, um, like prior to. Uh, TV's kind of ubiquity, uh, Bertolt Breck has the famous quote about proposing that the radio be a two-way broadcast so people could kind of communicate with each other over the way, over the airwaves, but obviously that never came to be. I mean, I guess you could argue that sort of internet communications and the telephone maybe fit into that, but um, yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, TV as a very central mass medium uh, was a one-way communication network, uh, is kind of the central uh, focus of a lot of these films. Um, that that's what you know where t- TV derives its power from. You have these huge networks that are uh, funding these um, shows of all sorts, um, pouring a ton of money into you know ad supported content, and uh, yeah, I just like uh, a lot of these sh- movies are kind of wrestling with the unilateral nature of TV as a broadcast medium, as a mass mm-hmm. medium. Um, how can people respond to that? In a like, uh, to use They Live as an example, how can people respond to that? Um, even if, you know, there are sort of things like public access TV and sort of counter media publics that existed kind of pre-internet. And these were certainly popular, but um, you can't really compete on the same terms as a you know, NBC backed, uh, series or something, uh, which I think is a, this power dynamic is something that a uh, network especially explores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all these movies, I mean, it seems like, I don't know, movies about television and maybe something we'll get to later is maybe the way that movies often frame these like issues and sometimes moral panics about television and kind of the uninterrupted 24 seven, just transmission, um, in a bit of a derogatory way or a bit of a a paternal kind of way. Um, But the thing that I think is maybe a bit ironic about movies like They Live and movies like 
network and Videodrome that are so cautious about like not just like the continuous like image, but also just like the transmission and what is being imparted on the viewer is that cinema itself is also a, a one-way transmission. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was this kind of assumption in a lot, well, it, in the 20th century or the second half of the 20th century specifically, but um, TV was such a robust, well-funded um, kind of uh, part of people's media diets and uh, just society generally. Um, I think filmmakers sought to kind of criticize that and critique it and uh, in a way that, you know, cinema rarely does to itself. Um, I can't think of very many films that uh, sort of take cinema as a kind of uh, form, uh, the, the Hollywood institution maybe, but um, whereas there's so many films that look back at, look at TV as a kind of uh, how it's produced and sort of try to criticize that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just like <laughs> maybe a, a means of, like industrial opposition um, where cinema as a medium is concerned about its own safety and, and well-being. Um, so it sort of responds negatively to television and attempts to criticize it. But I do think you also see a, you know, a, a tendency maybe to where like the aesthetics of television um, and the sort of, at least the it's live nature does offer a capacity to like transmit reality beyond cinema. Um, you know, a movie like medium cool, I think is, is maybe an expression of that uh, where television is like the ultra Byzantian kind of, of medium. You know, I just yeah, think of that, like sure. the, the iconic moment where you hear like one of the cameramen yell, you know, Haskell it's real. Um, which is just like, that's like, the, the punctum of all punctums, I feel like, just totally, like, uh, piercing through any kind of illusion. Um, but I don't know. I think there's also a lot of maybe a lot of hesitation about, like, a, a like a pure unfiltered transmission of reality. You know, like, Videodrome maybe offers that where, like, something about... Um, how much television allows you to see as part of the issue with it. Yeah. I think there's a hesitance to kind of recognize the, uh, the fact that images, even as like as close up as they can be and as personal as they can be and as uh, true to life as they can be in an example, like medium cool. Um, these are always kind of constructed images and they are always mm -hmm. produced by somebody with a camera. Um, I, I recently rewatched, um, can't think of the name of it right now, but uh, this like Rodney King documentary that was on Netflix. Um, they put it up for like a Black Lives Matter uh, photo series, but uh, so much of that is just uh, the product of the camera being in a certain place at a certain time. Yeah. Um, I I feel like there's a kind of interesting uh, unexplored aesthetics of like body cam footage and stuff that I'd love to see make the leap to like a screen life type film, but. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know if the, anybody mm -hmm. would be willing to do something so controversial. Yeah, I think wasn't that Jake Gyllenhaal movie End of Watch kind of body camera footage? Hmm. That's about the only one I can I can think of though. Or like, yeah, I think it was that sort of like the like kind of 
news uh, journalism, like homicide life on the street kind of aesthetic, which I don't know. There's like an interesting, uh, interesting, this is maybe a little bit tangential, but just like thinking about Rodney King. Um, recently, I watched the really awful uh, Martin Lawrence, Steve Zahn comedy, National Security. Um, oh yeah 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 which uh just a brief pl- <laughs> uh, plot synopsis of that movie steve zahn is like a police officer martin lawrence like uh is is wants to be a police officer but he keeps failing the test so he's just like a security guard um and Martin Lawrence is like trying to unlock his car, but like he he locks his keys inside, and so Steve Zahn like comes over and thinks that he's like trying to steal a car. And Martin Lawrence is like, "No, it's my car. You know, I'm not stealing it. Like, fuck off." Um, and then this like bee flies in, and Martin Lawrence is like, "Oh, like I'm allergic to." Uh, bees like i I, like i can't get stung and steve zahn starts trying to like swat the bee with his baton and somebody like happens to be filming and it looks like steve zahn is like brutalizing martin lawrence and then martin lawrence gets stung by the bee and his face swells up and it looks like he was beaten and then in this total fantasy of a world steve zahn is prosecuted successfully prosecuted and imprisoned for police brutality. But, uh, I, that's just like, I don't know. That was just like a total, like, I, I forgot where I was kind of going with that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's but, an insane film. <laughs> yeah, no, but I just think there's just like, um, uh, uh, you know, there's so much in, in cinema about like, video as this like manipulated format and uh sort of as television as this form format that can be manipulated um and you know it's like this paradigm of like one side is like this is like truth um and uh, and offers a way to look into reality and then the the kind of like the other side is that like um it, it, it can construct a false reality maybe easier, but it's, but, but it's just like a total false equivalence because cinema is also like constructed and, and pure ideology. So, um, yeah, I don't know where I was really going with that, but it felt related to something. It's all right. It, what you were saying that did remind me of, uh, Ed TV, which didn't make it on the, the list of movies from the syllabus, but, the think ron that ron howard movie with matthew mcconaughey in it it's like the video store worker who gets selected to have his his whole life broadcast 24 7 on reality tv Mm -hmm. um and and you know as it goes on there's a bunch of like hijinks that happen where drama in his life is broadcasted and like his girlfriend sees him do something on tv that she didn't know about so then the tv becomes a source of drama in his life where it wasn't originally um and it's also funny that he works at a movie rental store uh, and then his life gets totally transformed by TV where originally it was kind of made by movies. Yeah, I still haven't seen that. I I know you brought it up earlier in, when we were putting this together, but I haven't seen it. Um, I'm reminded also of the, there was a documentary that premiered at Sundance in, in like 2009, I think, called We Live in Public. Uh, 
about this sort of dot com uh, billionaire, I think, uh, who lost a bu- who made a bunch of money in the dot com boom and then sort of uh, was kind of unemployed for a long time. And he started all these kind of did all these kind of elaborate uh, early live streams of his like intimate life. Um, in New York in the uh, late nineties, I think um, it's mm-hmm. he. They're sort of framed as a kind of like art performance art type thing, but they're really uh, sort of cheesy. And he had a lot of like uh, sort of artists and musicians and people around him sort of uh, appearing in these uh, these sort of long uh, live streams. Um, it. I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of interesting to think about how it preceded sort of live streaming, I guess. But um, in relation to television, it's kind of the same old thing. Like uh, I think with reality TV, whatever that can kind of mean at this point, uh, it doesn't really like. Uh, I'm I know certain norms are traditionally associated with TV, but it feels like all those have fallen away in in uh, sort of either in favor of or um, just kind of as reality TV has become an aesthetic norm. Um. Mm-hmm. yeah totally and if you watch ed tv that's like a movie that's literally about just the reality tv panic yeah and you have just a bunch of and it's also funny because it has a bunch of tv celebrities in it like ellen the gen ellen degeneres and i think maybe penn and teller are in it as well i don't know there's a lot of tv people in it as well but i mean the whole movie is just kind of there's just screens everywhere and people are losing mm-hmm. their brains over watching people live life on TV instead of just yeah. living it themselves, you know? But also I feel like a lot of those kind of like associated aesthetics have kind of melted away because people have gotten used to like vlogging and people self-producing their own broadcasts. For sure. Um, one thing I was also sort of interested in around the time I was putting this stuff together was the kind of divide culturally between cable TV and reality TV and and streaming now, um, mm-hmm. that sort of binary distinction, uh, you see kind of a space hollowed out where uh, people who used to sort of tune in for the kind of monocultural primetime TV show, now that only exists on Netflix or Hulu or some other streaming platform, and the space that it's left on cable has just been filled with like uh, these kinds of like strange middle America, like history TV, uh, history channel type stuff. Um, uh, it's just fascinating to me to watch. Um, I'm, I'm looking for like scholarly writing on this, mm-hmm. but I haven't really found anything that does it justice. Um, just kind of the rise of like redneck cable TV, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's specific to the Trump era, but like I do pinpoint that turn. Yeah. as like a, Something unique happened there in the 2016 moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that like it's interesting because obviously there are like more movies that we did not think of that are about television. Um, But I do think a lot of the like major texts and the movies that are most critically engaged with television are from sort of a bygone era. And it feels like there hasn't been a like, maybe it's just like, it feels like the two have merged so much that there's no need for cinema to like critique television. But I just feel like uh, a lot of that kind of specificity has has faded away um and i don't know it's like the i guess because the two kind of currencies now of television it feels like the binary is like reality and and prestige um those are kind of just like the two currents and and there's nothing in between really um 
I don't know. I, I'm. I was. Uh, I, I feel like there hasn't, like you're saying. You know, there's been this huge, such a, you know, for a long time. You know, shows like Duck Dynasty uh, yeah. have been such a, a cultural force and like branded to the point mm-hmm. of like being like the minions of television. Um, yeah. But no, no, no. Go ahead, Seth. I was just gonna mention like Bill Dance, like fishing shows and stuff like that, as another one that's a bit older, but. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, like, things like Ice Road Truckers yeah. and uh, American Pickers Swamp and people. Pawn Stars. These are the sort of, the people, you know, network execs know this, but the people that are still tuning in to cable and watching commercial ad-supported TV are kind of old, retired people uh, throughout, you know, middle America, and they're making a lot of money off of this kind of uh, content. Um I think, I mean, it's not totally like a cynical marketing ploy, but I do think that's part of it. Um, I think uh, it's really interesting sort of aesthetically, um, this kind of shift. But I also do think uh, we've seen in that kind of shift between uh, sort of redneck cable and prestige um, streaming, if that's the kind of access we're discussing, there's kind of an aspirational prestige that exists on Mm -hmm. Netflix now, too. And where it's like shows that they want to kind of aspire to this kind of uh, language of prestige TV, but just kind of flop or don't make it, <laughs> don't pass the the bar. Um, I mean, some of it's interesting, but uh, there's kind of a spectrum emerging within that that um, I find interesting. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking for a second if they're like, we're kind of talking about movies that have this institutional critique of television I was thinking about if there are any TV shows that really kind of attack that as well. And the only one I can think of is The Newsroom, which was kind of <laughs> at the, the beginning of a more streaming based HBO prestige kind of aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely stuff I feel like uh, like Nathan for you um, that gets at it. But I feel like it's all so much of that like critique now is coming from comedy Um you know, it's, there's no, I mean, something like the, yeah, the newsroom is like the closest equivalent maybe to like something like broadcast news, you know, or, or network or, uh, those kind of like prestigious films that, uh, are engaged with television's impact on society. Um, it feels like so much of the critique is now just, uh, aesthetic satire. Um, yeah. And this is the kind of lineage of Colbert and uh, The Daily Show and a lot of stuff from the Bush era that was critiquing politics, but also critiquing the media as it existed in The New York Times, as it existed in CNN and all these kinds of institutions. Um, I'm thinking, you know, that kind of thread uh, exists with the West Wing. It exists with like the Americans. It exists in a lot of political TV, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure it exists as an isolated uh, criticism of the media per se beyond the media's engagement with politics and the presidency, etc. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of these things that we're talking about is this like, um, the kind of binary of television, you know, like now two different televisions almost existing, like the people who still watch cable, um, that we're talking about, um, and then, you know, people whose whose monoculture is streaming. It's interesting to me because it feels like that's maybe like 
the equivalent of some kind of generation gap for us, like, you know, like a six, like, you know, as, as everyone says of like the sixties and seventies, but um, that divide, that valley between cable television and, and streaming feels really crucial. Even if the monoculture of streaming feels like a really big force sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's generational, but I also think it's class-based. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I cited this in the doc, but uh, Pierre Bordeaux has a book called Distinction um, that's all about uh, the kind of, the way taste and class intersect. Um, and it's uh, super thorough. And he, uh, in ways that I don't think necessarily resonate with like the rise of postmodernism and high-low distinctions don't really exist as much as they once did. But I do think there's a certain... Uh, way that particularly with older people of a certain class um you know they grew up watching cable in a way that we don't and i think cable news uh particularly has a kind of it resonates with people of a certain generation and class in a way that Mm -hmm. people getting their news from social media and stuff uh it's a little it's different yeah but also i've kind of been like as we've like started planning out this episode and doing some notes and things like that, thinking about like what the the monoculture for streaming even looks like, just because it is such a varied and a bit sporadic of a yeah of a thing. I mean, it even reminds me of like in like video game culture, like most of like how that manifests these days is just people having massive backlogs of like digital games. Yeah, I think there certainly is a streaming monoculture. Like right when quarantine started, everybody was watching Tiger King, which I think is the one exception to the redneck uh, cable thing that I was talking about. There's (laughs) finally the redneck streaming show. Um, But yeah, uh, I do think that was a monocultural event that existed on streaming. Um, I think, yeah, there's occasionally... Um, I don't know. My brain's so warped by working as a journalist. Like these things that used to be monocultural, uh, like covering the VMAs and stuff. Uh, it, you really wonder, like when you're recapping them for a site, how many, how monocultural they still are. Uh, like the Super Bowl halftime performances every year, just like turning those into news posts to put on Facebook um, to get page views and to get ad revenue to pay your bills. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you never can tell, like how much I don't know how much that still exists and how much that's going to resonate with this sort of fragmented audience that you have. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I guess just like one thing that a lot of the changes that have happened because of quarantine have exposed. It's just like (laughs) the futility of so much that's intended to be uh, meant for, for a mass audience. Like, just, uh, you know, seeing how they sort of like try to reconfigure the VMAs and how they've tried to how how talk shows have tried to uh, change their setup and, and everything with sports audiences. It's just like it, it. I don't know, just all of these rules are baked into how we interact with a medium and our perception of it. But so many of those rules are just like totally arbitrary and don't really have any reason to exist yeah I, th- I remember pretty early in quarantine there was an episode of snl that was completely shot like on people's webcams and stuff yeah um i watched a little bit of it but it just like so much of that show is bound by the kind of constraints of the medium and the rhythm of the 22 minute uh series like episode and 
it just kind of flopped. It fell apart when they didn't have that kind of rhythm to it and, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of network audience. Yeah. And also, I mean, earlier in the quarantine when like sports were like continuing to happen without like the physical sport being played and it kind of like being replaced. I mean, a lot was made out of when they started like using like sports simulation games, but like keeping yeah, the whole the, broadcast like the, structure around it. Like the audio from like FIFA being piped into soccer games in Europe. Uh, that was crazy. I think that's still happening, honestly. But yeah, and like F one is was probably like the easiest sport that was like geared for for that kind of shift because people were just using like F one simulation games and had like their chairs and basically their cockpits at home to like just keep racing. But also, it started changing it where people would like be more aggressive with their cars because they didn't have to <laughs> actually deal with the like being in a wreck or anything like that. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't really been following that to be honest i mean a lot of it's kind of dissolved away just i don't know that was something people made like a huge deal about with those like monocultural events even when maybe the actual event it was around at first was replaced yeah the whole future uh is just esports i think <sighs> yeah i mean i do think there's some interesting stuff happening in esports and twitch especially yeah. has been really uh a cool development to watch kind of grow and evolve. But I, I don't know. I think Amazon is involvement in it and investment in it has uh, kind of is reason for concern. <laughs> they just announced, I think today, uh, today or yesterday, um, there's a story on billboard about how uh, Amazon music is now licensing background music for Twitch. Um, so you're going to be able to, well, artists are going to get paid through Amazon Music, but you have mm-hmm. to, uh, it kind of further entrenches Twitch in the Amazon ecosystem in a way that's sort of not surprising, but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to continue. Earlier in the quarantine, when people were using Twitch and doing more live stream stuff. Also, Amazon did, a, I think they created like a web development kit using like Twitch's infrastructure and things that you could just put on your own website without having to host it through Twitch, but is still using like Amazon Web Service and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of fascinating stuff on Twitch. You know, I was mentioning earlier, like people streaming full movies, but I've, I've seen things like, you know, people just setting up channels where they kind of just broadcast like random fragments of home video and like, you know, missile, yeah. uh, you know, esoterica, uh, from the internet and, and old music videos and stuff. Um, and it is, interesting i don't know it's like a very much a like uh marketplace of ideas approach to kind of broadcasting because it's it's sort of allowing a certain amount of credence and creative control but it's still dominated by this industrial infrastructure um and is still like ultimately tightly regulated as you know a a broadcast network Mm -hmm. would be I mean, you also kind of see it with like how Fall Guys has become this like massive success for a game that is, you know, a lot of people just like complain about it not being the most like fun thing to play, but it is just very accessible and widely Mm -hmm. approachable. And a lot of people are just kind of consuming it through Twitch and things Mm -hmm. like that. But I mean, outside of quarantine, I don't know that it would have been as popular at all. I mean, I guess that's a that kind of I don't know that raises like an interesting question uh, you know that could be applied to video games but i think could also be applied to any number of things that are captured by and on television is like how does television change 
the nature of like what is being broadcasted. I mean, obviously, you know, like reality television, like we've been talking about is an example of that, you know, it's like very easy to see maybe how human behavior changes on like big brother or something. But uh, it's a, you know, it's a question that can also be applied to sports, you know, like the, the rules of football uh, basically being changed to make it more amenable to broadcast and, you know, media timeouts, like things like that. I guess it, it is kind of like, uh, I, yeah. I think that comes back to the, like a, to the just general question of like, what is a televisual image? Because there are certain constraints that it places on, on everything it captures. Yeah, I think the kind of spectacle of TV um, has sort of been traded for the sort of attention, the aesthetics of attention maybe, um, that exist on places like YouTube and Twitch where people are sort of uh, trying to entertain an audience because an audience, a consistent audience means ad revenue, mm-hmm. um, means viewers, means ad revenue. Um, in a way that existed prior to the kind of micro economy of these platforms, but it's definitely heightened on YouTube and Twitch, especially um, people sort of competing for tips and whatnot um, in the little chat sidebar. Um, it's really strange, but, and I don't know, I, I mean, there are certain limitations to that, but it's definitely something that has thrived better than television, I think in the current moment, um, mm-hmm. or maybe not thriving more, but um it's just like uh, it's proven a kind of resilient model that keeps people kind of hustling and producing content in this industrial capacity that they wouldn't otherwise uh, occupy. Um, I think it exists on TikTok. It exists um, in the music world as well. Um, it It's sort of the kind of dominant mo- create mode of independent creation mm-hmm. uh, of the contemporary moment. And it's not great i mean it's great for a few really wealthy uh creators but for you know mass a a critical mass of producers it's kind of been uh pretty terrible to watch um so many people on youtube have you know produced these kinds of videos about why they're leaving the platform because you know they couldn't earn a stable living doing this 24 hours a day um it's Mm -hmm. a real churn um while people like Shane Dawson or PewDiePie or whoever, um, you know, are billionaires and Jake Paul and LA is full of this kind of influencer class of, uh, media people producing, um, you know, the shock kind of content, uh, that I think has become, has reached a kind of critical mass in a way that television once did, but maybe doesn't occupy that space as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the like, I guess, you know, <laughs> to me, one of the most significant developments about reality television is that, you know, it's essentially sort of an invention, I think, you know, just to skirt labor laws um, and create a new kind of actor who is not in a union um, and, and doesn't really have protection in the way that a SAG member does. Um, and I think that like that sort of the, that sort of shift to such self-generated, uh, content just like furthers that issue. You know, people are, are Mm -hmm. are 
creating massive revenue and a massive payout for this platform. Um, but there is no protection for them at all. Um, yeah. It's atomized by design. And the second you try to kind of organize with a, a guild or some sort of cooperative group of YouTubers or whatever, uh, there's always kind of more creators to undercut your your revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's certain people that have an audience that, you know, is loyal to them, but in many cases, that's not how it goes, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But also the way if you're not kind of in that upper class that's able to live in LA and this like kind of influencer stratification, a lot of times it just encourages, uh, I don't know, it, I mean, it kind of encourages people to, to kind of do things that are more attention based. Uh, do things that are much crazier and much more, I guess, clickbait is the... I don't know if we're post-clickbait at this point or what. Yeah, I think more people people recognize that clickbait is the beginning of a certain kind of attention-driven trend where like, it's not just about the click. You have to sustain the attention longer. This is kind of... There was a shift, I think, in like 2015 or so where YouTube started incentivizing... Uh, longer like, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh views you wanted to keep viewers watching it for a long mm-hmm. time so you saw the emergence of a lot of really long videos um you saw the uh, rise of kind of album full albums going up on youtube and people making a ton of money mm-hmm. putting them up there as opposed to singles um and uh sort of live live stream type things on youtube the lo-fi beats to study two type stuff mm-hmm. um but also with that, you do have kind of a return back to the the television form of having ads interrupting the content throughout. And that's another way to to incentivize making content that sustains viewership. Because you have these ad breaks throughout. I don't know. It's sort of, uh, I see what you're saying, but like I, I do think uh, there was a kind of rhythm to the 22-minute television show mm-hmm. where uh, that doesn't quite exist or doesn't quite have a corollary um, on like YouTube or online, really, in the, in the streaming uh, moment. Yeah. But um, it's something that people are, like, I'm sure ad, ad execs are thinking about this all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But also, it doesn't just encourage, I, I guess, more attention-grabbing type of content, but also it encourages people to have these multi-platformed existences and multi-platform revenue streams where you have the Patreon, you have... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, all yeah. these different places where you produce content and also grab revenue from and hopefully have an audience that has kind of seeds in all these different platforms that you have and follows you throughout them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people in academia writing about this, but one person that comes to mind is uh, this woman named Emily Rosmanson who's been writing about sort of the emotional labor of being an influencer and being a YouTuber and being a kind of internet personality. And uh, she's written pretty thoroughly about how people, how like it's not enough to just exist on one platform. Uh, You have to kind of be bombarding people on Instagram and be bombarding people on Facebook and just be everywhere where the audience is now. And it creates a whole sort of secondary uh, form of all these secondary forms of labor um, that didn't exist when you were just uh, working in television or working in a single medium. But it totally goes back to the union stuff that you were saying, like uh, there's not really any way to regulate that. If you do try to, you know, regulate uh, a single platform, there's still expectations that exist uh, everywhere else. 
Um, and there's just, I don't know, uh, sometimes not enough hours in the day if you're expected to mm-hmm. do this. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes it seems like the only real corollary to it is like oftentimes groups of young men moving into a house in LA and all sleeping on the floor and just producing content all day together until they hopefully all get successful. Yeah. The we are your friends dream, uh, you know, the Brockhampton dream. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's real. The Mm -hmm. dream is real. (laughs) I guess for um, some, yeah. I'd love to see this documented in cinema or in some kind of uh, way. I mean, we've there's been a lot of like newspaper and, and writers documenting this textually um, for big publications, but I don't think it's something that exists uh, in cinema. Mm-hmm. People aren't really making films about this, mostly because I think cinema has kind of recognized its place as a historical 20th century form. And I think most cinema now is so aestheticized and it feels like it's looking backwards um, as a, like, I don't know, as much as you can generalize about a whole medium, but um, so much stuff that I see uh, in the kind of Marvel cinematic universe is so stylized and so uh, it it sort of exists in a kind of alternate history where... um, I don't know, developments in YouTube and technological developments with mobile phones and stuff, they just don't exist or uh, aren't relevant to the plot in any kind of meaningful way. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of uh, scripts that are based on the scripts of scripts past and they're sort of taking the form forward in a kind of repetitive way, but they don't really reckon with um, media in any kind of critical way. Yeah, which is a shame. It's a forgotten opportunity. I'd love to see more. Yeah, it's. I think it's very hard in cinema to capture that kind of like ecosystem of of multimedia, and it's something that like so many filmmakers struggle to depict uh, authentically, or even just beyond like the question of authenticity. Like a lot of times, you know, like the integration of texting or, or, or viral phenomenon just ends up feeling kind of corny and immediately dated. I mean, in the mm-hmm. same way that a lot of like new media theory about certain digital phenomena immediately begins to date itself and sort of feels like, uh, of the moment as opposed to like kind of time, you know, more timeless moving forward. Um, yeah. And but I, I th- go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, you know, it's it's like, you know, I struggle to think of, of many movies that sort of like over the past 10 years do it well. I mean, a little bit older than that, but I think something like Southland Tales, like really effectively aesthetically, but also, you know, thematically beyond that captured the like the sensation both of a sort of like surfing cable channels, but also like a surveillance apparatus, which is also its own form of channel surfing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's, it's, there's not a lot that has successfully like dealt with the sort of fluid, flexible nature of, of media today. Which I think is why I had so much hope for the screen life genre. Um, you know, that was kind of the first commit, like committed effort to kind of do this. Uh, well, maybe found footage kind of to a little bit in the last few years, but 
I do think screen life has been kind of exciting, even as much as it's kind of been derided for how cheaply it is to produce. Um, I think it's just aesthetically really interesting. Um, yeah. Even if a lot of the films I've seen haven't really held up after multiple watches. Yeah. I mean, I, I do like the Unfriended's a good bit. I haven't watched this new one on Shutter called The Host. That's like a Zoom call horror Jeez. film. <laughs> but yeah. But um, I mean, I think you see kind of a, a bit of a binary between like films about people who just stare at their phones all the time and it feeling like mm -hmm. old men like scolding young people about being on the phone versus the screen life movie where it shows what's happening on the screen but even then a lot of those are like movies that are just made up of different notification sounds and kind of like the texture of using a screen but in a way that feels a little bit i don't know just a little bit just like notification and sensation like overload rather than rather than narrative yeah yeah, I mean, I think that, like, the unfriended movies are, I don't know, they, like, play, the first one played very differently for me in, like, different watching contexts. Like, I, the first time I saw it, I watched it on a laptop uh, and felt very scared by it um, just because it felt, you know, you know, obviously it's, like, the format fits the kind of the, yeah. the the interface of the movie uh mm -hmm. and then like watching it a, a second time on a larger screen it, it played like more of a comedy to me you know like more of a just straight up teen slasher movie but it is also a movie that's like uh, uh, i think the first one and the second one as well are both like you know critical about um online spaces and like the repercussions that they have like irl mm-hmm you know, the first one of being about cyberbullying and the second one being about like why you shouldn't steal people's laptops and go on the yep. dark web, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the dark web sensationalism. Yeah. But I, it's the same moralism that existed in the teen slasher flip too, you know? Yeah, like, totally. Uh, the teens that go, you know, the first to die are always, you know, having sex or something. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of, but I do, yeah, I think specifically with Unfriended, there's a kind of, immediate visceral connection between the jump scare and the digital cut um, that doesn't really translate when, uh, you know, screen life is approached from non-horror, uh, as a non-horror kind of film. I, I saw the film yeah. Searching, the John Cho one. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that one <laughs> wasn't great. Uh, it, there's so many slow moments in that where he's, like, just plodding along on uh, Google Maps and yeah. stuff. And it, it just... <laughs> It felt like it was trying to build uh, suspense and construct narrative from these interfaces that are kind of resisted. Yeah, and that one also I remember having like camera shake on like these moments where it would zoom in on different parts of the screen like it's mimicking the protagonist's eye or something. Yeah, I saw it in, in the theater too and it was uh, really jarring to mm -hmm. see it. I mean, I, it was sort of successful to me as a movie about a middle-aged man being baffled by technology because there's so many shots of like John Cho just looking confused while he's typing. Um, and I remember there was like even I think there's a scene where he like types in Tumblr and he like spells it with an E. Yeah. But it felt like more than I don't know. Un, the You know, the Unfriended movies, unfortunately instantly date themselves just because social media platforms change uh, visually so often mm -hmm. but searching felt like it was very dependent on like 
internet nostalgia, I guess. You know, there's like this sort of opening credit sequence where you see the daughter of John Cho like grow up through pictures that are on the computer and like through sites that she's going to. And like you see like addictinggames.com and like um, the... What it, I, don't, I don't even remember what it's called, but like the maze game where there's oh, like the yeah. scary face at the like end. Like the impossible maze. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they sort of reference that. Um, mm. And I don't know. It felt like it was trying to conjure the Internet more as this just like space of memory rather than like a real sort of material reality, which like I feel like Unfriended tries to do more, even though it's maybe more supernatural. And I think that's just like, I don't know, that's what's interesting about the screen life genre versus like movies about television is that it's like so, so rare that films that try to critique television in some way, like try to fully embody it on an aesthetic level. But Unfriended like tries to, you know, basically is like a seance, like using this one medium as a medium to kind of evoke the spirit of of online through cinema yeah there's one thing we were talking about movies that do kind of capture the the modern whatever like multi-screen experience reality but i think nerve is one that's pretty good with that though it is like a teen suspense and action and you know things were just like teenagers are just jumping off a bridge because somebody liked their post or something like that like that type of internet forcing kids into crazy situations mm-hmm but I think that one does like an interesting job of showing how, pe- how you know, I guess this fake app for this fake game show uh, kind of creates that two-way connection between viewer and watcher. Though at times it's a bit, it's a bit eye-rolly where you have like a just a binary between do you want to be a viewer or do you want to be a watcher kind of thing, or not a viewer and watcher, a uh, a viewer or a broadcaster. Yeah, I guess that's you know I I feel like television is. Like, I guess I was maybe saying earlier, you know, it's kind of dependent on that, like, relationship of audience control. And, uh, and you know, you, you uh, over time, there's been an increasing amount of, like, ability for the, the audience to intercede, you know, like the invention of the remote control. And now, like, kind of the rise of, of self-broadcasting has kind of collapsed that. Even further, I feel like, you know, it's, it's you know, as you were saying Seth like there's it's not like there are just watchers who are bystanders um and broadcasters who are participants it's kind of like we're uh, we're all broadcasting you know it's your tube youtube yeah when, remember when was the Time Magazine cover that where like you were the the cover star, uh, person of the year? Oh yeah, I remember that. That <laughs> it seems so like a well. 2007 type thing. He, uh, yeah, I think it was 2006 yeah. or 2007, and there were like profiles of lonely girl 15 and uh, Charlie bit my finger, chocolate rain. Yeah, just a a, a much fonder time <laughs> in my memory. <laughs> yeah, one thing I I uh, I'm reminded of with. Uh, screen life is just the the weird geopolitics of it all. Like Timur Bekamikov, Timur Bekamikov is, you know, Russian. And I think um, just the speed that which with which these mm-hmm. films have been produced has kind of mirrored a global industrialization and sort of 
American cinema outsourced around the globe in a way that many commodities are? Um, can screen life be seen as like a post-colonial gesture using these interfaces and doing all this editing with them? Uh, there's something sort of uh, kind of click farmy about the way that these movies are produced. You can write a script yeah. <laughs> and sort of outsource it. I think game design has kind of learned from this too. Um, the way that you can have uh, characters and sort of uh, assets in game engines sort of produced in faraway places. Um, yeah, you can outsource all of your like the like non main character stuff to like a Chinese asset farm. Yeah. And, you know, there's huge pay discrepancies and it just becomes much more economic to do that. Um, it's it's really there's a fascinating sort of geopolitics there, I think, mm -hmm. that people haven't really explored quite yet. Yeah, I know. I don't think it's been released in the U.S., but I know he directed, uh, Timur directed another Screen Life movie called Profile, which is about like ISIS radicalization yeah. or something. And, you know, it's it's interesting to have that be taken in a kind of like directly political tenor because like beyond horror, I don't know, you know, I don't know, like because uh political communication online is like so loaded and also so sort of specific and essential to today's society um i don't know it feels like one of the more interesting spaces to like take the genre beyond horror even if i'm sure the movie is probably like super problematic <laughs> yeah but this it's uh emerging from like very real like a very real genre of isis recruitment video where they you know use uh YouTube as a kind of recruitment tool. Um, there's this uh, design duo, um, I think they're Dutch, uh, Metahaven. It's kind of the name they produce uh, graphic design and sort of multimedia communications design under, but they have been producing a lot of films recently about this kind of uh, ISIS propaganda through YouTube, through uh, WeChat, through a lot of digital spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and their documentary filmmaking is really incredible mm -hmm. as well. I mean, you even see that in America, but in a much more like traditional format and a much more kind of plotting way where after the 2016 election, you start seeing very sympathetic portraits of like people getting absorbed into 4chan and getting radicalized into maybe alt-right splinters and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's probably only a matter of time before there's like a Screen Life movie at Sundance about far-right radicalization in the u.s that seems like a sure bet on on a bingo card yeah there's there's one about pizzagate it's not a screen life film but uh there's like some sort of low budget uh slasher thing about pizzagate coming out i heard uh it's all the trailer for oh geez oh god maybe somebody's making a, a movie in microsoft flight simulator about investigating the epstein island or something you know i'd i'd watch a microsoft flight simulator movie sully too yeah i mean it's interesting that flight simulator is now become also a blockbuster game just because video games are a little bit just eating themselves just making hand over fist so much money but amidst all this like development unionization mm -hmm. and labor turmoil but also like earlier in the quarantine there was also like another type of flight simulator that was a first person like sitting in a business class cabin just in a chair 
and an airplane flying through the sky and it's just you sitting there for the entire time. I mean, it's not out of like character for video games. They have like trucking simulators and stuff like that as mm-hmm. well. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think uh, with Microsoft Flight Simulator specifically, they're benefiting from a kind of nostalgia for their own product that has emerged in video game spaces over the last few years. Like they're remaking countless games. I know they're remaking the first Tony Hawk Pro Skater, um, just like with updated graphics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Just been really uh, kind of interesting. I guess it's you know purely. Maybe not purely, but, uh, you know, money is definitely the driving factor there. Yeah, me and Nathan were talking before you joined the call earlier just about the PlayStation 5 being announced or like leaked through some kind of like Ubisoft support page that it won't do backwards compatibility with anything beyond just the PlayStation 4 games. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of people are very, you know, quippy, like quote tweeting about it being just about reselling digital copies or HD remasters and revamps that are technically new products and new SKUs and everything. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like there's a a kind of almost an issue with backwards compatibility in television where so much of the history of television is not like readily preserved or available, Um, you know, because so much of television content just throughout history is considered like kind of disposable. I mean, you know, like, game shows or like various uh, made for TV documentaries or just like different local public shows. Just there are so many vast hours and hours of television that like just doesn't really have, you know, obviously like film preservation is a huge issue, but I think it's like, Mm -hmm. it's sometimes there are a lot of genres of television that are like much harder to sort of sell retroactively to a contemporary audience in the same way that like you know with the leak about the the ps5 not having backwards compatibility like one marketing rep for sony was like oh you know i looked at playstation one graphics recently and i just don't know like who would want to play that and i think that just like there's just been so much that's radically changed about the aesthetics of television that like um it's just like where do like you know where where do, where do like where does like sid caesar or like something go like where who you know who i don't know i don't know this it just feels like so much of tv is yeah. just like this wasteland that's kind of been forgotten yeah one thing recently that i put on kind of uh, is a kind of ambient thing to sort of have on in the background was uh, somebody put they put uh, Jeopardy on Netflix recently yeah. um, and it it totally this recontextualization from kind of daytime TV to the streaming platform uh, really I mean beyond recontextualizing it it just uh, introduces this kind of stream based ambience uh, that I think exists in a lot of places on YouTube mm-hmm. and on, in Twitch and a lot of these kind of ambient streams, uh, the kind of cult of Bob Ross on YouTube comes to mind. Um, mm-hmm. Lo-fi beats the study too. There's a there's a an ambient streaming um, sort of culture that I think hasn't fully been explored either. I'm sort of trying to write about this on my own, but um, yeah, I'm kind of working on a paper about ambient streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of music, but also in video and the way that um, these kind of temporal uh, breaks in 
like Spotify and YouTube particularly, but elsewhere as well, um, kind of structure the payment around uh, time in broadcast in, in what used to be broadcast, uh, but now is kind of purely the scrabble of the streaming bar. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure it's quite an aesthetics, but it's a kind of um, temporality of control that structures the politics of how things get uh, monetized and it could lead to an aesthetics or maybe there's already mm-hmm. an ambient aesthetics to that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you see like um, maybe it hasn't led to a fully distinct aesthetics yet, but at the very least, like it encourages certain kind of aesthetics, you know, like you were, you know, you were mentioning jeopardy Rob. And like, I think that's a perfect example because it's like, a show that just sort of the way that it is produced is like very conducive to either having it on in the in the background or sort of like drifting off to sleep to it. You know, it's just like fairly it's it's it has a kind of this is not I love Jeopardy. It's not a like knock on it, but it has a kind of flatness to it and such a predictable rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I feel like a lot of times, at least like there are certain, you know, you mentioned Bob Ross too. And I feel like there are even certain like, um, narrative shows that fulfill a similar function. Like I feel like part of the popularity of Frasier on Netflix, um, is like, I mean, I think that Frasier is a hilarious show, but it's also just like very muted and, um, is, has a sort of ambience to it. Um, I don't know. I think it definitely like it, there are things that um, get maybe singled out because of that desire for ambient streaming content. I also noticed recently that I was getting on Netflix on my Roku and it has, you know, like the different user profiles and below the user profiles, there's now a literal shuffle option that just like shuffles you through like new Netflix originals. So it started me on like see, like episode three of the show Dark, which I've never watched before. Um, and I was just like, damn, this is just like... It's like iTunes or Pandora. Yeah, it's like really real, like within the context of no context hours. Like, I don't know. It feels like almost beyond channel surfing in some kind of way. Um I mean, people have also talked about wanting like playback speed control yeah. on different streaming platforms, whether it's video or music. Yeah, I saw something about like a news article on Twitter about Netflix introducing that, um, which really does change the rhythm of television quite literally, um, and it sort of economizes the stream, by like intentionally, uh, you can sort of watch for plot and sort of breeze through the TV show you have to write about for a review this week as a writer. Um, and you don't really have to focus on whatever you don't want to, um, it becomes extractive. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of my older brother who listens to a lot of audiobooks and just like a couple days ago told me he used to like be listening to stuff on like two times speed. But then the other day told me he's listening at like three times speed to audiobooks. Oh my God. And it's just breaking it down and extracting just the literal words. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so many people listen to podcasts at, you know, one and a half speed. 
Um, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if some people listen to Hotbox the Cinema at one one and a half speed. <laughs> but um, I think that I you know, it's an it's interesting because I feel like a lot of yeah. streaming aesthetics does kind of end up mimicking podcasts at least like in terms of like documentary production a lot of like docuseries on you know netflix or hbo have the same kind of quality as investigative podcasts you know they're just sort of maybe stretched out or there are images i like i started watching um mcmillions on hbo and i like bailed after the first five minutes because it was just like so plotting and so sort of like stuffed with just like recreations and and all of these talking heads and stuff and it just felt like you know i would honestly you know even though i'm not a huge podcast listener i would rather like listen to like a one to two hour episode about this one incident or whatever as opposed to this like 12-hour miniseries. And I do think that podcast sort of aesthetics you're referring to kind of exists because of journalism, because people in, you know, in legacy newsrooms were allocating all the all this funding to podcasts, or they're like, well, how do we actually produce this with, uh, you know, access to really good, rich uh, archival audio and, uh, you know, song clearing Clearances and uh, mm-hmm. it just made the podcast into a really pristine product. Uh, that it's funny to think that uh, documentary filmmaking has maybe cribbed from that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I was really reminded of Serial when those like there was that moment of several like Firefest documentaries coming out years after. Yeah, the yeah, Firefest yeah. debacle happened, but it reminded me of like the release of Serial and that kind of like blockbuster just database of information but you have like one journalist kind of navigating you through the entire thing Mm -hmm. one thing though about that type of like journalist podcast where it's just a journalist navigating through like these archives or different things and piecing things together in a sequence for a blockbuster podcast or something like that reminds me a little bit of how a lot of like twitch celebrities and people like that um are making careers off of just showing people how they use the computer and kind of guiding people through the experience of, you know, surfing the internet or playing a video game, Um, especially battle royales being something that's, we've already talked about a bunch, but something that's so choice-based and you're just kind of watching Mm -hmm. how they navigate a certain situation of resources and information uh, in a way that, well, most of them, you know, they win or something like that, or they might impart some of that information onto you. Like a kind of YouTube explainer type thing. Uh, like, if you do this, you can be successful at this game, etc. Or just, like, how many of those YouTube explainers or, like, those Vox videos, at least a while back, were, like, a journalist who has a bit of, like, a personality angle who's, like, this week I got this song really stuck in my head, so I started going on the Wikipedia page, and then I found that it was written by this person, and then just kind of explaining down this whole kind of internet rabbit hole they went through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's about it as far as what I have to say about about the topic uh yeah do we have any final thoughts at all uh about about television about streaming algorithm culture this vast ecosystem of media objects we've been talking about i don't know it's a vast worldwide web of things Uh, truly 
yeah, it seems to be there's always something new to say about it. Yeah, and these things are changing so quickly, it's hard to even uh, stop and think about it for too long, uh, even long enough to like write something substantive. Um, yeah, and by the time this gets edited and turned around, a lot of the reference points that we have mentioned in this of like news stories from like today or this week will already be just like a vast milestone in the past. Yeah. It's the futility of discourse, you know, it always becomes irrelevant. True. But Rob, where can people find you on the internet? Um, yeah, I have a website that's robarcan.co. I'm on Twitter at robarcand. Uh, that's probably the best, the best two places. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Do you have any projects you want to promote real quick? Uh, not really. Just doing some freelancing here and there. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. Let's follow the Twitter. It's where everything's going to be. Keep tabs on the me on Twitter, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you can find us, of course, uh, at Trillmore Girls, and Seth is at Aceps on Screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Twitter at Hotbox the Cinema. You know, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts. We also have the Hotbox Hotline, which I haven't checked if we have any. <laughs> voicemails for that but i have a feeling we probably don't so i'm gonna check it later maybe um but if you do want to get in touch with us you can leave us a message 615-592-1003 or you can email us hotboxthecinema at gmail.com all right well i guess until next time until then keep on token Everybody said it was close.
everybody, everybody selling coke, boy. 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 Everybody, everybody selling coke. Like why clef, I'm a refugee. Throw the air cocky, don't play hockey, but have your mom and go to gear. See the ice, grab the stick, hit the brake pass. Get a knee pass, penalty, face mask. A face grab, the dawn enters the dawn center. The dawn to dawn, play the dugout like Don Zimmer. But hang with Steinbrenner just to get my cash turned. Call my car, Jamal, and get mash burn. Crash burn, rest in peace, Dale Earnhardt. He's Dale Earnhardt, he's Dale Earnhardt. My cousin died the same. Way hit that turn hard, so I so I stack from the gambler, drop cash in the family, play hip set, dip me the national anthem, drop the seven series to the world series. I'm so serious, I want the whole world. Man, I got to be the best living, that's a given. Check my stats, this the halftime show. What the mess with that? Killer cam, killer cam, killer cam, What's your name, huh? Killer, killer cam. Killer can, what's your name? Man, I got, got, got to be the best living, that's a given, check my stats, it's the halftime show, what the rest with that? Killer can, killer can, what's your name, huh? Killer can, yo, killer can, what's your name? Man, you know how I line my back, with a dime of crack, they sling to the rack, through the legs, behind the back, wanna play for my team, come sign the track, treat you like a sprinter, I find the track, if you hype, I got hypermen, Spiderman, in Minnesota, my Viking, Sell Vicodins. I got clients connect, my alliance respect. I'm like New York football giants on jets, even Buffalo Bills. But I ain't no place like most mills, but I still got you. Try down a mic to the vinyl type, wine on white vinyl, sight selling information for a dollar white. That China, China. I'm behind the diner, selling, selling, selling marijuana to a minor, minor. Elder Felder looking for that shine, I'll shine ya. My mind designer, you a dime, I dime ya. Madonna mama, body bottle, you're fine. I'm finer, time to climb, I climb behind vagina, then I hime and grinder, so I'm my reminder, diamonds blind, blind, blinder, vision's gone, kiss a palm, turn her arm, lift her arm, notice that her wrist is wrong, gotta get it right, mom, we gon' get along, said how, don't trip, but yo, the trip is long, first visit one, day job, ticketron, nighttime, Mr. Mom, bootleg, Chris and Dawn, brother, Chris and Dawn, and they sister calm, they sell yay, you'll say yay, this shit's the bomb. I'ma hit my man, tell him you my pick upon the rest. So yes, you'll be blessed to hit the intercom. You know Kiss's mom, she gave him wisdom charm. And they father come from a long list of dawns. And I get it cheaper, I cop bricks like sneakers. And if the cops come, I just hit amnesia. But I give you an earful, it's tearful. Told my mother I hustle, and she said be careful. Why I feel like I'm losing weight? Why ain't got, got, got no money if I'm moving weight? My life's based upon what I'ma do this year. Cop, cop, cop a boat, cop a leer. Now the army suits cute with my chocolate ears. You ain't gotta stare, go cop a pair. Still the scrutiny, nothing they could do to me. I made sure my mother and girl is smothered in pearls. When a nigga under un- un- the world. Everybody like Cam got the recipe now. Not them three girls, I got to be destiny's child. Especially equities, reckon we smash. In the fear tech, detecting you detect that we wow. Detective, deceptive, receptive of fouls. Hectic, heckler, cotch. Helicopters on the set of my sails. Nah, I ain't gonna be embedded in jail. Talking to a cellmate in a bed in a jail. Call. 
I, I broke bread with the whales, fled from some sales. And the house I was the head of the hell. Shit, you get a dumb hoe and get dumb happy. Go to the gun show, get gun happy. Stuff, kill, mug, milk, tone, flint, sticks, bow, chubs, milk. Poochie, baba, butter got the hardest shells. We the Midwest gun cartel, nigga. Yeah, we'll just clap up your brain, snatch up your chain. C-Door rap is my aim, but I'm a hustler. In my heart, trapped is the game. Attached to my frame, tapped to my brain, the fact still remains. It wasn't rap, it was crack that got the racks on the range. Look, dog, don't be asking for dames, see? Playboy, I don't own that man. And anyway, homeboy, you a grown-ass man, shit. <laughs> Back up town, baby, Lennox Ave. My Oye's on Broadway all day. Uh, come uh. on. Hey, yo, you love, love the way I rap black. Step the F back. But we have a gun to chest chat. Respect that. Any girl I met that, hit that. Love the way I spit that. Hound kick that. Push your big back. Get your shit snapped. Get out. Get your ribs cracked. Got a front habit. Kick that. Get that. Sit back. School shit. Skip that. Learn how to flip pack for the big stacks and the big act. Now I got the big act. Click black. Uh, since day one. Been in the ditch. Kim with a snitch. Now I'm in the pen in the mix. Friends sending me flicks. Girls sending me kicks. Been in some shit. Had to tap a chin with a fist. Hold the bang out and blew him. Begin with a stitch. And with a kiss. Yo, so I blend in the mist. Now they don't go by. I ain't bending the chick. Eight and a half on the dope. Ask Dominican rich. Winning and rich. Eating on cinnamon grits. Grinning and shit. How a nigga spinning the six. See, they all say you 12. But you see me with it. TV's in it. BB kidding. Acts who it is. You see the tenant. I did drive by. Now I take you on top of a high rise. See if you can skydive. I bring it to you at your local gymnasium. How about the Palladium? Fuck it. Yankee Stadium. Uh, play people. Jumped up and spray people. I got doodles that'll jig you with the A's needle. You not a threat. You want it? You got a bet. I leave your mama and your papa wet nigga when I'm upset. I go another route. Kidnap your family. Make your brother eat your mother out. After, after, I done dug her out. Needles to drug her out. Pillow to smother out. You don't give a fuck about. I'm with a thug about. I grew with it. Your crew ain't even true with it. I seen your man, he like, um, nothing to do with it. I know you pack like that, but can why you act like that? Shut up, nigga. Clack, a clap. Pat, pat, pat. Rat, tat, tat. Nigga, I'm not a fair of any. I'm even nigga black and blue like, blue like a pair of pennies. Why me and Betta? Throw fiesta, bala maqueta, chiqueta, monero, fiesta. Don't ever fuck around with the Don Chetta. See Jimmy Jones frontin' in the chancleta. Or the black boots jumpin' out the act cool. Cars never lease em. Girls, tease em. My man Matt's wife, he want me down with the threesome. Niggas, tease em. Bitches, please em. When I'm out of town, yo, my pants gotta crease em. All cars valid. Never hard malice. Up in your favorite star stylist, coward, white on my hoes like who's like Marv Alvin. But you should think unknown, could have made you run, no, been at your front door, gun home, fun, no. Yo, 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 what's up? What the fuck is wrong with you? Man, fuck that, it's not a game, man. You gotta be rhyming for niggas like that. Fuck them niggas, man. Yo, you know what you do? Tell these niggas the real deal, alright? Check it. Hey, yo, I'm cooking the back, look up the cracks. Every time you look up a gap, got the air with that, huh? Look in the back, nah. And when I see you, I'ma take, take what I want, so you try to front, hope ya, you ain't real, hope ya, my first album, bum, had no famous guest appearances, the outcome, 
I'm crowned the best lyricist. Many years on this professional level. What would you question who's better? The world is still mine. Tattoos real with godson across the belly. The balls are rap. You saw me in belly with thoughts like that. To take it back to Africa, I did it with Biggie. Me and Tupac were soldiers of the same struggle. You lanes the huddle, your team shook. Y'all feel the wrath of a killer. Cause this is my football field. Throwing passes from a barrel, shoulder pads of paddle. But the QB don't stand for no quarterback. Every word is like a sawed-off blast Cause y'all lost off And I'm the black hearse that came to haul y'all ass in This for the hood by the corner store Many try, many die Come at nines if you wanna walk Get it bloody uh. I got mine, I hope ya You from the hood, I hope ya You want beef, hope ya And when I see you, I'ma take what I want So you try to front, hope ya You ain't real, hope ya Yo, I'm the N-N, the A to the S-I-R And if I wasn't, I must have been Escobar You know the kid got his chip too fixed Hair parted with a barber's preciseness Brave hearted for life is return of the golden child Son of a blues player So who are you, player? Y'all waited the true saviors Puffin' that tropical Cups of that vodka too Poppy choose toe up Wake up in a hospital, throw up never Remember I do this through righteous steps You Judas thought I was gone So in light of my death Y'all been all happy, go lucky Bunch of samples, call me God Son, with my pants low, I don't die slow Put them rags up like P.D. Pablo This is Nasdaq though, in my Nas car With this Nas flow, what could beat that? Not a soul reppin', hit the record store Never, never let me go, get my whole collection Yeah I got mine, I hope ya You from the hood, 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 I hope you know. You from the hood, I hope you know. The world, you from the Yard, I sell it off the hard. I'm a neighborhood pusher. Call me subwoofer. Cause I feel like that jack on the off the track. I'm heavy cuz. Duck to the Fetty girl. Sorry, my love, but I'm Only big boys keep deuces, deuces, deuces on a ride. Gucci Chuck Taylor with the dragon on the side. Man, I make a buck while I scram. I'm trying to show y'all who the fuck I am. Jews is flirting, be damned if I'm hurting. Legend in two games like I'm Pee Wee Kirkland. Platinum on a block with consistent hits. While Pharrell keep talking this music shit.
whichever palm I'm holding. One will leave you frozen, the other nodding toes, and I'm grinding, Jack. Stay in line with you. See a nigga like me, shine.